I uh, <clears throat> was telling my buddy that I had the post-Thanksgiving sermon, and he's like, oh, really? He's a, he's a pastor up north in Wheaton, and I was like, yeah, he's like, I'm so glad I don't have that. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, it's just tough. Nobody comes. <laughs> Apparently, he hasn't seen Christian Hills Church because we show up. <laughs> yeah. Good morning. I'm, uh, I'm Vernon. Um, some people preface it with other words, uh, but I'm Pastor Mike's son-in-law, um, and I'm uh, really excited to be here this morning with the post-Thanksgiving crowd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's going to be good. Um, as, as a kid, I remember my childhood, uh, and large portions of it seemed like I was waiting. I was waiting. I was waiting for Christmas, right? How many of you waited for Christmas? Couldn't... How many of you opened your presents early? <laughs> waiting for birthdays, waiting for school to be out, waiting for dad to get home from work. It seems like my childhood was marked by these periods of waiting. <laughs> and I thought maybe that once you get to be an adult, you kind of get to do whatever you want. You don't have to wait anymore, Right? You don't have to wait. You can do whatever. You can eat candy whenever you want. I became an adult sometime in the past couple months, and, and I've learned that the waiting gets worse. <laughs> Is anybody listening? The waiting gets, gets worse. Uh, there's been more waiting. Some of it's good waiting, waiting to marry my bride, waiting to have Emerson or Harlow or Declan. Some of it's difficult waiting, not sure what's next, waiting for a job, waiting for a house, waiting. Yet as I look back, I've learned two things about God. The first is that God's faithfulness is the most evident in seasons of waiting. That God's faithfulness is most evident in seasons of waiting. Not that He's more faithful, but I see it clearer. That God's faithfulness is more evident in seasons of waiting. And the second thing is this, that God takes his time, but he keeps his promises. God takes his time, but he keeps his promises. As you look back, has God ever done anything on your time schedule? On on the day marked, December 1st, God's going to come through. Has he ever shown up on the day that you wanted him, on the moment you needed him? Maybe that's a bad way to phrase it. Has God ever shown up on your schedule? God never shows up on my schedule. (laughs) He never shows up on my schedule. And yet, when God comes through, it's better than I've ever imagined. Am I right? Has anybody seen that 
in their life. That when God comes through, it's better than you even imagined. It's just never on my schedule. How many of you this morning are waiting? In a season of waiting. You're waiting for God to come through on a promise. Maybe you're waiting on God to give you an answer. You're waiting on what's next. Church, are you, are you waiting on God? Are you waiting on God? I want to I dig into the Word this morning. Who's ready? Let's, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1 is a story about waiting. Now, before we get into this, if you have a digital version, you're not going to be able to see this, so you may want to pick up one from the row in front of you. If you have an actual Bible, or you're, um, uh, you'll, you'll be ready, because there's a page between Malachi and Matthew. Does anyone have a page between Malachi and Matthew? And it's a little blank. Am I right? I call this the 67th book. (laughs) The 67th book of the Bible because it's in these pages that nothing's written on that there was silence. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, God spoke through people and He brought prophets and He brought leaders and He brought people into their life. You think of the big names like Moses or Abraham or Elijah and Elisha or Jeremiah and Isaiah. You think about these prophets who came and cried out the word of the Lord, that on behalf of God, they delivered a message to the people. It wasn't always fun, but they brought a message. And then we get to the end of Malachi, at least in our Bible, and this page represents silence. Because for 400 years, there were no prophets, There were no written down words of God. And as far as we know, God was silent. That this page represents 400 years of silence. Can you imagine waiting on God for 400 years? Can you imagine waiting on God for 14 minutes? Waiting on God for 400 years. Now, you see, if you were a Jew or an Israelite, there's going to be two passages that you know without a shadow of a doubt. The first one is Genesis. Genesis 12. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. Genesis chapter 12. This is called the Abrahamic Covenant. And it's an incredibly important passage because in this passage... God promises Abraham that a Savior is going to come from him. We're going to read Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 2. And I will make you, talking to Abraham, a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth, shall be blessed. So in this promise, God is essentially saying to Abraham that because of your faithfulness, I'm going to bless you. 
that from your family, all people, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So from Abraham's seed, God is going to use that seed to bring about blessing for all people. This is important because as they read the Old Testament, waiting for a Savior, this was a promise that they clung on to, that from Abraham, from our forefathers, that God would send a Messiah, somebody who would save us. And he had to come from Abraham. Now, the second promise they would cling to is in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7 so the little ways down in history, King David is now presiding over Israel. And God says to him in chapter 7, verse 12, I will raise up for your offspring after you. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Listen carefully. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. So here we see that promise to David that somebody in the line of David would be king, that a king would come from the seed of David and he would reign forever. This isn't a normal kind of king. This isn't one of David's great, 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 great grandchild in his line, that somebody from the line of David would reign forever. Not just an, a normal human. So, as they read the Old Testament and they waited for the Messiah, they clung on to these two promises. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, saying, I will bring about, bless all nations through you. And then the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel, saying that from you I'm going to bring a king that lasts forever. So, in this 400 years of silence, these people clung on to these promises and waited. He had to come from Abraham, and he had to come from David, along with the host of other prophecies. But they waited. And for the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, they waited. And then... And then comes Matthew. And Matthew comes on the scene, and he's writing his book after Jesus comes, and it's the first words that we read in the New Testament, that between this page, this last page of Malachi, and this blank page of 400 years comes Matthew. And what does he say in verse 1? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Is anybody listening? This is the one we waited for. You, you remember all that silence, all the waiting? You thought, maybe it's been a long time, God. Maybe he's not coming. Maybe, maybe, these, maybe we got these verses wrong. In fact, some Jews were beginning to wonder if it really was a person that was coming. That maybe it was just an aura wasn't somebody who was coming, but that his reign forever is metaphorical. No, 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 no. Matthew says in verse 1, chapter 1, this is the Jesus Christ, the one we've been waiting for, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
We, 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 it is good. This is the one we've been waiting for. Isaiah says it before that people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This is what we've been waiting for. Now, why does Matthew start with a genealogy? It's kind of boring. Right? The first book of Matthew doesn't start with once upon a time. No, 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 no. Once upon a times are for fairy tales in Star Wars. This is not a once upon a time. No, Matthew was writing because Jesus came in the flesh. The fulfillment of all the promises that we've been waiting for is here. He's actually here. He came and he's alive and you don't have to wait any longer. The son of David, the son of Abraham is here. This isn't a once upon a time story. This is real. That's the first thing I want you guys to understand, that when you come to Matthew 1, we're not reading a fairy tale. We're not reading good advice, and we're not reading about a good teacher only. We're reading about the real living Jesus Christ who came, was 100% man and 100% God, and he came in the flesh as a baby. That as we're talking about for the next four years, the fulfillment of promises, that God had promised this since the beginning words of Genesis. That he was going to crush the serpent's seal. That a, a Messiah was coming. That he's the fulfillment of promises. This isn't, this isn't a fairy tale. This is the real thing. And David says, let me prove it to you. <laughs> Now, who here has skipped a genealogy? I've got four hands and about 200 liars. <laughs> who, who here is like the, the first half of the book of Numbers? That's my jam. <laughs> that, that's where I live. <laughs> no, in fact, a lot of times, where do we start with Matthew? We start with, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, right? That's where we start on Christmas. We don't start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's just a list of names, right? It's just a list of names. But I want to show you this morning, church, that in the caverns of Scripture, the caverns, the things we skip over, the dark places, the ones we haven't searched out a whole lot, even the, even the caverns of Scripture display the gospel of Jesus. The first thing I want to talk about is the structure. This is important because as we look at this, Matthew designed Matthew chapter 1 in a really specific way. We actually get to the end, and he, and he says things. Uh, so these are all the generations from Abraham to David. There are 14 generations and from David to the deportation in Babylon, there are 14. And then from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, there are 14. So as we read this, instead of me reading through every single name, I want to talk to you about how he structured this. And he structured it in three sets of 14. Now this was designed very carefully. If you've noticed, in the last uh, five years or so, the technology has advanced enough where you can now... Uh, <laughs> 
spit in the tube, send it off, and they'll send you a kit back explaining where you come from, right? DNA kit. Some of you may have even done this yourselves or purchased one the other day. This has become quite popular. There's businesses competing for your saliva, a little weird. Uh, but why does this matter? Why are we paying, why are we paying for that? Because we care about where we came from, right? We, we feel like if we get some insights into where we came from, we might better understand who we are. That maybe the past tells us a little bit about who we are now. But when we look back and we see that we have ancestors in different parts of Europe or, or Africa or, or Asia, that we might begin to understand a little bit more of who, what makes us us. We're curious. But we haven't been curious just for the last five to ten years. They just have profited us, for, profited off of us for the, that time period. We've always been curious about where we come from because our family history matters. Our family history matters. And in the first century, it mattered a great deal. Uh, your lineage was essentially your resume. Where you came from, whose line you were in, was essentially what made you worthy of being you. You come from the line of King David? You come from the Levitical priesthood? Did you come from the land of Canaan? Where did, where did you come from? In fact, we know that it's incredibly important because Herod, uh, being the, the nice man that he was, uh, <laughs> decided to try and adjust his lineage a little bit for people that he didn't like so much, either erasing them completely or having them erased uh, both metaphorically and, and uh, literally. He changed his resume to make it look better when he was king. So the lineage is incredibly important because it's essentially saying, this is where I come from. This is my resume. This, this is who I am. This is what I've done. And this is, who, this is who I am. This is what makes me, me. So when Matthew gets to this part, he's not simply just listing a bunch of names. What he's doing is he's showing that Jesus is the rightful heir to the Davidic promise. He's the rightful and legal heir to the Abrahamic covenant. That Jesus is who he says he is. You think that a legal covenant might be a little bit important? Yeah, it is. And Matthew designed it in a really specific way. He wanted to show you how important this was. So he designed it in a, in a really specific way in three sets of 14. He did leave some people out. However, looking back and cross, uh, you know, figuring this out with some of the other Gospels and what we know about history, uh, we can see that it still lines up despite how Matthew wrote this. So now Matthew wrote it in three sets of 14, as I said. Now, why might this be crucial? I have a few theories about how, why David might have written it this way. The first is that in Hebrew, the letters are also numbers. It'd be like if ABC were also 1, 2, 3 in English. They're the exact same thing, interchangeable. And this was interesting because oftentimes it made words and numbers incredibly important. This is why you see numbers so prevalent in the Old Testament, 40 and, and 407. These are important things for the Jews. And so as we come to this, 14, if you take David's name in Hebrew, is 464, totaling up 14. 
in a sense, saying, Son of David, Son of David, Son of David. That's, that's one theory. The second is that if you break these up, that the three sets of 14 are six sets of seven. <laughs> Vernon, you're reaching a little far here. <laughs> the six sets of seven. And what's cool about this is as we know in the Hebrew language that six is important as seven. Six is the number of... Anyone know? No, six. Six. Six is the number of the devil, right? Six, six, six. Six is the number of the devil. What is seven? Seven is number of completion. And so as we read through this, we see six sets of seven, and Christ makes the seventh seven. The perfect of the perfect. The perfect of the perfect. That's theory number two. The third one is actually from back in Genesis. Back in Genesis, the writer says in chapter two, this is the generation's well, let's just read it so we get it right. Um, Genesis chapter 2. Don't feel like you have to turn there. He says, verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day of the Lord, God made the heavens. Some scholars have wondered if Matthew is signifying the sign of the new creation. As Paul wrote later in 2 Corinthians, that all those who are in Christ Jesus are a new creation, right? The old has gone, the new has come. Is Christ the sign of the new creation? We don't know for sure what exactly Matthew was trying to do. I mean, he talks about the 14s at the end, but he doesn't outright say, this is why I wrote it this way. But no matter how you look at it, you begin to wonder if he had some help. <laughs> maybe, maybe, just maybe, God was there, huh? That in the, in the names and the genealogy of Scripture that we see signs pointing to Christ. <clears throat> so we've, we've seen a little bit of the background. The silence of the 67th book, right? The waiting. That is, the people of Israel waited. They waited for a king to come, and then Matthew comes on the scene and says, that one you've been waiting for is here. Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. And then we've seen the structure that Matthew very intentionally wrote this genealogy to point to Jesus. This is the one who was promised. You don't have to wait any longer. Jesus is here. But now, let's look at the names. Let's look in the genealogy. Because Matthew did some interesting things. First, I want you guys to see that the gospel is good news for sinners. The gospel is good news for sinners. I'm going to pick out a few names. The, the first one is in chapter 6. When he says, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Why, why would Matthew put that in? 
Instead of just saying David was the father of Solomon, Solomon was the father of Rahab. No, he added the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Because in the midst of this genealogy, he's going, people aren't perfect. David, before he became king, had a group of mighty men. You remember, I think we just few sermons ago talked about the mighty men of King David. And one of those men was Uriah. And as we all know, David lusted after Uriah's wife, had Uriah, one of his mighty men, killed in battle and took his wife. Matthew doesn't want us to skip over sin. Matthew doesn't want us to skip over the sin in the Bible. Men are imperfect. Was David perfect? No. Was David in the, the line of Jesus because he was perfect? No. In fact, you remember he had Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He, he so intentionally calls out the fact that David is not perfect. David screwed And yet we find David in the line of Jesus. The next one I want you to look at is in verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetalil, Shetalil, doesn't really matter. Jeconiah is a very interesting king. In fact, the Jewish people had a problem with Jeconiah. The reason was he was in the line of King David. <coughs> Excuse me. But he wasn't a good guy. He was actually a pretty terrible king. He was full of sin, did not walk with the Lord. Absolutely terrible. And yet, he's in the line of King J David. Now, the reason they had a problem was because in chapter 22... In chapter 22 of Jeremiah, Jeconiah is cursed. I'll read it for you. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. He was cursed. Not, nobody in, in Jeconiah's line is going to rule over, over Judea. He's not going to sit on the throne of David. And he's not going to rule in Judea. Now, the reason this is a problem should be obvious because God promised David that from his line, right, that God would sit on the throne forever as a son of David. Now, it wouldn't have been a problem if God subverted Jeconiah because, right, not everyone and every sibling is in the, the genealogy, right? He could have just avoided him. Yet, Jeconiah is in Matthew. So they had a problem. How is God going to come and fulfill the Davidic covenant and fulfill the curse of Jeconiah? This is, guys, this is cool. Because, you guys, why does Matthew follow the lineage to Joseph? Right? Joseph had nothing to do with this baby. Joseph, Joseph didn't have anything to do with the baby. God, through the line of David, brought about Jesus, 
but it wasn't from the seed. It wasn't from the seed of Joseph. He's not Joseph's seed child, right? He's birthed by the Holy Spirit, and so the line breaks at Joseph. Why does Matthew write it all the way to Joseph? Because he shows that Jesus Christ is fulfilling the divinic promise of being a king forever on the throne while also fulfilling the curse of Jeconiah. That God didn't have to subvert his plan. That even, even Jeconiah could be in the genealogy of Jesus. Even Jeconiah. You see, Matthew is trying to tell you that in the names of Scripture, the gospel is good news for sinners. The gospel is good news for sinners. The second thing, the gospel is good news for the oppressed. One of the things that would have been extremely evident as they read this genealogy is that women were all over it. Nowadays, you go, how come there aren't more? <laughs> no, 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 women were not in genealogies. They were somewhat superfluous other than the fact that they helped bring offspring. Genealogies were all men. And yet there are five women in Matthew's genealogy. We've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah and Bathsheba, and Mary. Now, why did Matthew put women in a legal lineage document? Because the gospel is good news for the oppressed. You think back to the story of Tamar. This is another really interesting story. Why would Matthew try and bring up the memory from Genesis of Tamar? It is a terrible story of, of prostitution and incest and, and debauchery. This is a story that if they could, they would have wiped out from the Bible. It's one of the proofs of why the Bible is true, I think, because stories like, like Tamar exist in Genesis. It is, it is disgusting. And yet as we read back in that story, through and amongst the sin, we can see that Tamar faced oppression. Matthew didn't even have to include her. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. He added her as a, as a remembrance. You remember back to that awful story in Genesis, the one you want to forget? Jesus is good news for the oppressed. Or Rahab the prostitute. Or Ruth or Bathsheba or Mary. Matthew wants you to know that if you're feeling oppressed by the weight of sin, that if sin has caused you to feel oppressed, or if you feel downtrodden by society, low on the totem pole, that the gospel is good news for the oppressed. The gospel is good news for the oppressed. And lastly, the gospel is good news for the waiting. Are you waiting, church? Are you waiting on the promises of God? Waiting for God to come through and show up? Because these people waited, every single one of them. 
they waited. And yet God, through the names in Scripture, brings about this incredible story that God can work through sin, oppression, and God takes his time, but he keeps his promises. God takes his time, but he keeps his promises. You think back to the story of Joseph. Can you imagine being in Joseph's shoes? God throws him, or his brothers throw him into a pit. And from that moment on, Joseph is crying, where are you, God? Are you even here? And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he ends up as a slave. And just when he thinks he's cut a break, Potiphar throws him in jail, right? God, where are you? Do you not see me? Did you not promise me that? God, where are you in the midst of this pit, in the midst of this cell? Church, are you waiting? Because Joseph later says to his brothers, what God intended for evil, the Lord turned for good. It took a long time. Are you willing to wait a long time? Are you willing to say at the end of the day what you meant for evil, God meant for good? Are you willing to believe that the gospel is good news for sinners, the oppressed, and the waiting? I, I love what Tim Keller says in the King James Version, you may read, and it says, Abraham begets Isaac, and Isaac begets Jacob. And Tim Keller says that even the begets of Scripture drip with gospel mercy. Even the begets of Scripture drip with gospel mercy, that we can find that God can use even the lineage to bring about his will. Church, maybe, maybe every word in here is breathed out by God. And maybe this is true and it pierces e even more than bone and marrow. It's sharper than a two-edged sword and it's profitable. Church, this is true. Jesus wasn't some story. Jesus is alive, and he's here. And he came to preach that the gospel is good news for sinners. The gospel is good news for the oppressed, and the gospel is good news for those waiting. Are you waiting? David, David knew a thing or two about waiting. And in the Psalms, he says in 27, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Church, are you waiting? Let's, let's worship as we wait.
the darkness and bathe in your light. And I recount all every blessing, the words you've spoken that bring me new life. I am reminded of where you have brought me, where you have placed me for today. I won't forget that your hand will hold me, your love sustains me through the way. I will wait on you, Lord. I will wait on you, Lord. As you as you listen to this church, put yourselves in the shoes. Is is the Israelites waiting for the king as we wait for Christmas in the next few weeks as you're waiting on the promises of God in your life I want us to worship together so would you stand and as we stand we're gonna sing these words again waiting on God too heavy to hold. There's a river, there's a sunrise, there's a new day, and it's bringing new life. I am reminded where you have brought me, and where you And I won't forget that your hand will hold me, your love sustains me through the way, I will wait on you. in his love 
God, you are good. And we know you're, you're with us even in the waiting. You're with us when it seems like it's taking forever. God, remind us that even though you take your time, you keep your promises. You are a promise keeper. God, we love you. For those who want to keep waiting on the Lord, stay here. We'll let this place be a place of waiting if you need it. You can leave if you need to, but we'll have the prayer team come up. And if you need prayer, if you want somebody to pray over your waiting, feel free to come forward. May you be strong and courageous and wait on the Lord. In the morning, I will rise up, shed the darkness and bathe in your light. Now we count on every blessing, the words you've spoken that bring me new life. I am reminded of where you have brought me, where you have placed me for today. And I won't your hand will hold me. Your love sustains me through the way. 
or too heavy to hold. There's a river, there's a sunrise, there's a new day, and it's bringing new life. I am reminded where you have brought me, where And I won't forget that your hand will hold me, your love sustains me through the way I will wait on you, Lord. I will wait on you, Lord. I will wait on you. I'm waiting you, Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, all that's within me. I will rise in his love. I'll shout of what he's doing. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, all that's within me. Me, I will rise in his love. I'll shout of what he's doing. What you're doing. I am reminded where you have brought me, where you have placed me. Today, and I won't forget. 